And Jesus called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today marks an anniversary of sorts. The second Sunday of Lent, 2020, was the last time that we gathered as a parish community in the church for public worship. It was the last Sunday we drank together from the sacred chalice. It was the last Sunday we drank together the not-so-sacred coffee in the parish hall. Last year, on this, the second Sunday of Lent, we were standing at the very edge of the precipice of a pandemic. We prayed the great litany, just as we have today, pleading God's mercy to deliver us from, among other things, plague and pestilence. Most of us probably glossed right over those words. None of us could have imagined the struggle that lay ahead. In many respects, it feels like this has been one year-long Lenten season. The Lent that we began last spring has yet to end. And so here again, we find ourselves on the second Sunday of Lent, continuing to pray, likely, hopefully, with a renewed fervor, that God in his mercy would deliver us from plague and pestilence, that he would visit the lonely, Strengthen all who suffer in mind, body, and spirit. Comfort with his presence those who are failing and infirm. That he would have mercy upon all humanity. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. I'd like to begin today by sharing a rather substantial passage from Bishop N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. But before I do, a brief introduction is in order. The women's ministry at St. Michael's, the Daughters of the King, has been studying this book at their monthly virtual meetings. And I've been blessed to read along with them and occasionally to crash the meetings themselves. At last month's meeting, one of the chapters we discussed was titled Purgatory, Paradise, Hell. And towards the end of this chapter, Bishop Wright makes the case for the manner in which our passions, our sins, don't merely drive us away from God, but that they actually have the effect, the natural effect, of dehumanizing us. That is, our sins distort and degrade and ultimately destroy our very human nature our identity as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. He writes, When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that we become like what we worship. What's more, we reflect what we worship, not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the world. So let me just pause here to emphasize this point. By design, we are created to worship God. 
And when we do this, we actually become more like God whom we worship. We become filled in a dynamic way that is more or less with his Holy Spirit. As St. Peter says, by God's divine power dwelling in us, we are able to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. That's from 2 Peter 1.4. Or as St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, When a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's from 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. When we worship God, we become more like God. But this is just the half of it. The other half is that in worshiping God, not only do we become more like God, but we then reflect God, not only back to him, but also outward to the world. And this is the purpose for which we were created in the image of God, to love God, to worship God, to be filled more and more with his light and love, and to reflect that light and love to the world around us. However, if we worship something or things other than God, the principle still applies, but its effects now become destructive, both to us and to those around us. So on this note, Bishop Wright continues. He says, for instance, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money, that which they worship, and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of sex, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of power and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. Bishop Wright goes on to say, these and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. My suggestion, he says, is that it is possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all whispering of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become at last, by their own effective choice, beings that once were human but now are not, creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. Now, on this 
last point that he makes in speaking about what happens after death. Bishop Wright goes on to confess that he has now, quote, wandered into territory that no one can claim to have mapped. Fair enough. But the principle to which he speaks is a sound one, indeed a sober one, for the spiritual life. And in today's gospel, our Lord gives us a piercing and succinct summary of this very same principle with these simple words, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For us to worship the creation over the creator, we may gain the whole world, but we will forfeit our life. We will lose ourselves. Is this the kind of profit we seek? And Jesus goes on to ask the rhetorical question, what can a man give in exchange for his life? And the meaning is clear. If we lose ourselves, having lost ourselves, there's absolutely nothing that we're able to give in exchange for in order to get back the life that we have lost. Even if we could exchange a life for a life, we have lost our life, and we have no life to give. Generations before our Lord's incarnation, the Spirit of God, speaking through the psalmist, reveals this very same divine truth, writing, We can never ransom ourselves or, to live or deliver to God the price of our life, for the ransom of our life is so great that we should never have enough to pay it. That's from Psalms chapter 49. Which brings us to the paradox of the Christian faith. There is only one way for us to gain our life, to save our life, and that is to voluntarily give it up. In last Sunday's sermon, Ben shared the words of a faithful priest who said, the more that you want something, the more you must give up in order to get it. This principle is true of life itself. So Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, that is, gives up his life for my sake and the gospels, will save it. The mystery of the Christian faith is that in order to save our life, in order to have life, we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. The way of the cross is the way of true life, real life everlasting life. Now, to be very clear, there is nothing inherently wrong with God's creation. To the contrary, the scriptures say that God's creation, all of it, is good. There is nothing inherently wrong with food or sex or even power and authority. What is wrong is our disordered relationship to them. And it becomes disordered out of order when we replace God the Creator with His creation. Anything, anything can become an idol. A spouse 
a hobby, even an idea, which is why we practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. These disciplines are safeguards that protect and keep rightly ordered our relationships with God, with our neighbor, and with the material world. They are a conscious effort to short-circuit our disordered passions and to keep God in his rightful place as Lord and King of our lives and of his whole creation and to worship him alone. The purpose of the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is not to strengthen the self-will, but rather to abandon it, to deny the self in order to be filled with God and reflect his life and light back to him and to the world around us. We see in the lives of the desert fathers and mothers whom we are studying on Sundays in our town hall, we see what it looks like when a person actually does this or endeavors to do this with all of their effort, when they actually deny themselves completely and lose their lives, give up everything for Jesus' sake and the sake of the gospel in order that they might be saved. They become filled with the presence of the most holy God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they radiate the love and the grace and the glory of God to those around them. This, too, is our calling. As we consider the eternal significance of our Lenten disciplines in particular and our spiritual disciplines in general, I'd like to conclude with the words of the 6th century bishop, St. Caesarius of Arles, who writes, While there is much in the world to love, it is best loved in relation to the one who made it. The world is beautiful, but much fairer is the one who fashioned it. The world is glorious, but more delightful is the one by whom the world was established. Therefore, let us labor as much as we can, beloved, that love of the world as such may not overwhelm us, and that we may not love the creature more than the creator. God has given us earthly possessions in order that we may love him with our whole heart and soul. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.